Okay. This morning we are in Hosea, uh, chapter five. If you'll turn there with me. Uh, we're going to get through about half of this chapter this morning in Hosea chapter five. Now, in this chapter, God kind of sets his sights on the leaders uh, of Israel. Um, he kind of did in the last chapter as well, uh, but he condemns them for leading the people to idolatry, which should be no surprise because that's this book is all about their unfaithfulness. And we're going to find that consistent theme throughout. Uh, but he also levels his corrective hand at, at the people of Israel because they've subjected themselves to this. They're allowing it. When God instituted the covenant with the nation of Israel, he didn't institute it with the leaders. He instituted it with all of the people. And unanimously, they, they agreed to keep that covenant. And so here he's holding them to account personally for their failure, for their uh, indulgence and in, in following after those who were in leadership and not holding them to account. The certainty of judgment is really what the, the overarching fact of this, this book, this chapter is about. Uh, and really the parallel to the people of God is not lost on us because today the church is the people of God. And so we will draw some parallels there. And with that truth of certain judgment, that, that, that it is imminent, that God is going to deliver on his promise there, comes the unashamed and the honest declaration of God that he has not forsaken us, that he has not left off uh, with his people. He has let them fall into their sin so that they may reap what they have sown. And that might be a mechanism to draw them back to himself. So as we progress through this morning, that's sort of the, the overarching themes. That we may be corrected by God, but we are not forsaken by God. So let, let's uh, just quickly look at the players here. Yeah, I'll have to click it again. I don't know. We're going to get that figured out. Uh, the, the players, we have Ephraim, which we, we've only read about at the last, the, the conclusion of chapter four. And uh, we didn't really cover that particular verse. We have Ephraim, uh, which is a tribe in Israel, but it's the tribe that Jeroboam the first was from. So if you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, we'll just make sure we understand that that is the case. We're not just pulling this out of thin air. 1 Kings chapter 11. In verse 26, it says, the Jer And Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and Ephrathite of Zeredah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a woman, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king. So he is from the tribe of Ephraim. And when we read through uh, really the rest of this book, the book of Hosea, Ephraim is used interchangeably with Israel going forward. So we just need to understand that. Um, Judah is also facing uh, God's corrective hand, and they're actually mentioned here in this, uh, in this chapter. Now, primarily, Hosea is a prophet to, uh, to uh, Israel. <laughs> Boy, that took a little while to get out. But we find that Judah is, has got some things to address as well. And so they're a secondary character here, um, but they struggle with some of the same faith issues 
not as much as idolatry yet. That's coming, uh, and we're going to see that, but they haven't fallen to those depths of idolatry. So it's a faith issue that God is addressing them for. Uh, next, and third, we find the Lord. And I, and I bring this up very specifically because I want you to understand that the, the hand of correction is God's hand, and it is him doing it. He sovereignly is moving uh, on behalf of the people. He's here working and moving to bring them back to himself. He is the one sovereignly orchestrating the reproof of Israel. Now, let's read the first six verses this morning, uh, and we'll come back and we'll draw some, some parallels here. He says, hear ye this, O priests, and hearken, you house of Israel, and give you ear, O house of the king, for judgment is toward you, because you have been a snare on Mizpah, and not and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters are profound to make slaughter, though I have been a rebuker of them all. I know Ephraim, and, I, and Israel is not hid from, him, from me. For now, e, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. Then shall they, shall go with their, they shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. So we have a couple of things at play here. And I, and I want to, we're going to hit some highlights and make some applications that are pertinent to us. So I don't know, maybe the battery's dead or here. I, I don't know. We'll just have to forego it or you can stand there, whatever you choose to do. It's fine. He says that they that the Israel has uh, become a snare on Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. Now, both of those regions, um, Mizpah and Tabor, Tabor, are areas that are known for hunting or trapping. So he's using them as an, as an example. Now, the other thing is that they are near Israel. They're on the border. They're both of them are within Benjamin, and I intended to get a map in here so that we kind of see because we'll probably get to that next week. Uh, but here they are snaring them, and he's using them specifically because of their proximity, them being close to the borders uh, of Israel. But in addition, that they are uh, here being used as an illustration of the leadership snaring the souls of the people rather than leading them in truth. We have this corruption of authority in Romans chapter 13. Um, should be familiar to us, especially as we're studying through the last few weeks in Sunday school, uh, looking at government and its limited scope and all of those things, God's uh, institution of government. And we, we find that in many respects rooted here, or at least reiterated, it's rooted in the Old Testament first. We have it here, though. Let, let's look at it. And I want to draw some application here because there's a failure on the part of uh, the, the kings and the leadership, the priests there in Israel. He says in verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. 
for he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do which is, that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. So the, the purpose in the tent is here, God says, listen, I'm going to delegate authority to these rulers, and their job is specifically to punish the, the evildoers and to reward those who are doing good. That's their job. Yet here in Israel, what do we find? They're actually the ones instigating. And there is some uh, tradition, you don't find any biblical reference to it, but there is some tradition that because Mizpah and Tabor are very close to the border there in these mountainous regions, that Jeroboam would set spies there so that when those faithful Jews would leave Israel and go over to Jerusalem, they would be caught. He couldn't have anybody that would remain faithful to God because that would corrupt his plan to be uh, to use idolatry as a mechanism of control. Like I said, that's, that's by tradition. We don't find that in Scripture, but there it is nonetheless. That the government structure there in Israel had failed to the extent that they were the instigators of evil, that they were punishing those who were uh, seeking to do right, and that they were rewarding those who were falling to idolatry. Corruption of authority. In Hebrew, excuse me, in Hosea chapter 4, verse 9, we'll remember that as he was discussing the priests and their, their effect upon Israel in general, he said that like the people, like priests. In other words, that as the priests are engaging in idolatry, as the kings are engaging in idolatry, so will the people. We also find that there is an unresponsiveness to the corrective hand of God. So the leaders are instigating sinful idolatry, and then not only that, but they are, secondly, unresponsive to the corrective hand that God is laying on them. Verses 3 and 4, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God, for the spirit of whoredoms, or the spirit of idolatries, what it literally means, is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. They don't frame their doings. In other words, they are unwilling to turn from their idolatry. They're unresponsive to the corrective hand of God. And now, and now God has been gentle up to this point. He sent messengers. He sent them to those that would call them to account. He hasn't been aggressive. And I think that's something for us to look at and to consider because God in his dealings with you and I tends to be gentle, tends to send the conviction of the Holy Spirit that the word of God would come to bear upon us and we would see ourselves in that law and we would respond to it. Yet here is God dealing harshly in many respects with Israel because they have been unresponsive. In John chapter 3, we, we find insight into why this is, and it's nothing new to us. We've looked at this before. Jesus himself addresses the core issue. He says in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. 
Now, ultimately, Jesus is here speaking with Nicodemus. We will remember that. And he's talking uh, in terms, ultimately, of unbelievers. But there is some application to be made here to the people of God as well, that we can be unreceptive to the corrective hand of God. That there may be those things in our life that we are withholding, that we don't want to allow that correction to come to bear. We, we are working against, as it were, the sanctification of God in our lives. And that we would be just like these who would hold those things back for whatever sinful reason we may have and not bring them to the light. In 2 Thessalonians, turn there with me, chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, clearly, we're not talking about believers here. This is a reference because we don't, we're not damned. We're, we're justified. We are declared to be righteous by God. We have received eternal life. But the point in coming here is this look at this progressive correction of God. That he'd begin gently, that he would reveal himself to his creation through his creation and through his word, first and foremost. He would make himself known, that he would leave us without excuse because he has sufficiently revealed himself. Even his eternal power and Godhead is known. Yet we in our sinfulness are unwilling to, and, and not only unwilling, but we would hold back that truth. We would un, leave it unacknowledged in our lives. We would be unresponsive to the corrective hand of God. And as an unbelieving world does that, God progressively turns up the heat, as it were, in a means to try and win them, in a means to try and woo them to himself, show them their need, show them their, uh, their inability to save themselves. And the same is true for you and I as believers. We witness it in Israel's history, that he would send them a prophet. He would send them another prophet. And that's exactly what's happening here in Hosea's day. Hosea just happens to be the last prophet. They've been unresponsive. And you'll remember that in the very beginning of the book, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here, but God says, listen, no mercy. Name one of your kids, Loruhama, because no more mercy. We've moved beyond that. You've been unreceptive to the gentle correction. Now we're going to have to escalate it. We do the same thing with our children, don't we? We don't give them endless warnings. In fact, Scripture would indicate to us that if we give them endless warnings, we're probably spoiling them. That at some point, they're going to reap what they've sown in disobedience, just as God is saying to you and I. In 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. 
He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And we're going to spend some time this morning addressing the, the struggle that we all uh, find. But here are the leaders of Israel, unresponsive to that corrective hand of God, to the gentle corrective hand of God. And now it's escalated to the point they're going to reap what they've sown. And, in, and we find that their fruits, what's coming out, is indicating where their heart really is. They don't know him. They don't love him. They don't have any desire to walk in fellowship with him. And we know that because they choose disobedience over obedience. We also find that as we talk about the sins of the leaders here in Israel, and this is pertinent for you and I as believers, he says that I know Ephraim and Israel is not hid from me. Right? God knows. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's happening. He knows where their hearts are. He, he knows all of these things. There's no surprise to him. In 1 Kings chapter 14, if you'll turn there with me, 1 Kings 14. In this chapter, we find uh, Jeroboam's son has fallen ill. And Jeroboam's wife goes to seek counsel of the Lord. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, I pray thee, disguise thyself, that thou be not known uh, to be the wife of Jeroboam, and get thee to Shiloh. Behold, there is Ahijah the prophet, which told me that I should be king over this people. Right, so here's what Jeroboam's doing. He's saying, listen, Israel, we're not going to go over there to the kingdom of Judah any longer. We're not going to worship there. We're not going to pursue God there. We're going to set up our own idols. Yet when his son is sick, when it's on the line for him, he tells his wife, disguise yourself, sneak over there and seek counsel of God's man. There's a prophet over there that told me that I was going to be king. Go seek what he says about our son. Right? Well, he, he's not even walking by his own rules. But as we progress through this, when Jeroboam's wife shows up, she's recognized. Look with me in verse 5. The Lord said unto Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam comes to ask a thing of thee for her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shalt thou say unto her, for it shall be when she comes in that she shall feign herself to be another woman. God reveals to this prophet, listen, Jeroboam's wife is here. He knows why he's there. Why she, he knows why she's there. And he tells him exactly what he should say. And as we progress through there, verse 7, Go tell Jeroboam, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, for as much as I exalted thee among the people and made thee prince over my people Israel, and rent the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to thee, and yet thou hast not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart to do that only which was right in mine eyes. But hast done evil above all that were before thee. For thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and to cast me behind thy back. He confronts Jeroboam through his wife, through this prophet, and tells him, listen, I removed it from the 
from David, who was a man after my own heart, who though he struggled with sin, would be somebody that would serve me. He walked in my commandments. He walked in obedience. Yet you, Jeroboam, choose to walk in sin. Not only do you walk in sin, but you've established these idols. You've led the people to idolatry. You've caused them to sin. There's no surprise here. It isn't as if God is in heaven and he's ignorant of what's taking place in your life and in my life or in the circumstances and the situations around us. And when in regard to our own sinfulness, this is a very comforting thought. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 4, I think it says it probably more plainly, more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture. Hebrews 4, verse 13. Now, this is speaking in regard to the Word of God, to the precise and surgically accurate discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart, motive, dividing even the asunder between soul and spirit, that which we can't fully recognize nor comprehend, yet God can clearly cut between the two. And he says this, Neither, in verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest. That word manifest means laid bare. We're standing before God as if we were naked. There is nowhere and nothing to hide behind. We are manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We're not getting away with it. Just as Israel and their leaders are not getting away with it, God knows everything that is happening. He knows everything that is taking place. Not only that, but we see here's Jeroboam, who was called by God, told that you are going to be the king. I'm going to split the kingdom. We're going to put you over here. And he clearly discerns the motives of Jeroboam's heart, the why he did it. Now, you and I may, before those that we go to church with, or friends and family, we may be able to do things good on the outside. But we may have a very corrupt intent and purpose for doing those things. God knows. We're not hiding anything from him. There is no creature that is not manifest in his sight. Now, I say that it's a comforting thing that God knows everything that is going on, that he knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And the reason I say that is because if God knows, I'm not breaking any news to him, as it were, when I confess my sin. That when we respond, that, that when God already knows, when we choose to be those that would acknowledge the sin in our life, that we would be, uh, as Jesus continues on in John chapter 3, and he says, but there are those who love God, and they come that their deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Like David, who had to be confronted by God for being a murderous adulterer. Like David, who struggled in, in pride, wanting to number the people. How many people am I king over? And all of the ramifications that were associated with his sin. Yet, we find the commentary of God himself about David is that he is a man after his own heart that he would look at his sin when confronted with it, just as we are confronted with it as we are in the Word of God. And we see it the way God sees it. And when we are confronted with those very truths, that we are quick to confess it. 
First John 1 9, excuse me, it is First John 1 9. It's not just John 1 9. First John 1 9 would tell us we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He isn't somehow withholding anything from us when we come to that place of reformation, individual reformation. It is a comforting thing that God knows. What we find on by contrast here is that even though God knows, even though God has confronted Israel over and over, they have not framed, as it says, they have not turned from, they are resolute in their rejection of God. And that's where we need to guard ourselves, that we don't become resolute in our rejection of God in any area of our life. He continues on in verses 5 and 6, looking at the sins of the leaders of Israel. It says, the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. Israel's refusal to turn from idolatry reveals a heart of pride originally found in Jeroboam. It continues indicating that the pride of Israel does testify against his face. It is what betrays him. What is coming out of him is a revelation of what is within him. That every king since Jeroboam would say, we can use these idols and this national religion to deceive the people and maintain control. In 1 John chapter 2, if you'll turn there again with me, 1 John 2, verses, uh, verse 15, says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the, father, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I want to just pause there for a moment. Jeroboam loved the status. He loved the position. He loved the glory, as it were, of being king of Israel. There is no prohibition for you and I that would say that we don't love people, that we don't love uh, our family. In fact, God would sum, or Jesus himself would sum it up and say, love God and love people. And within that is the whole law and the prophet. Everything is summed up in those two. What he's saying is the pursuit of those things, the love of anything. He's referencing idolatry, anything that would replace or displace God from his position. Right, so we don't hold on to that love. We put those things aside. Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the, Father, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but also of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. This is their pursuit. This is where they stand. They would rather have the recognition of men than they, than they would have the recognition of God. Now, we could put anything in that blank. Talking about the pride of life, those things that are in the world, 
It may be things, it may be position, it may be honor and prestige, it may be anything that we would put there. And I would suggest that there are those things that we could put there that would otherwise fall into a good and an appropriate category. But we have allowed them to become something that would displace God, that would become an idol in our lives. We talk about, uh, or, or I've had discussions with those uh, about Mormonism and, and commended the, the status of family within the Mormon church. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with having strong family ties, with, with taking what God has clearly laid out in the word and letting that be at play. However, it's become an idol. Even within their own religion, it's become an idol. It is something that gets elevated and then somehow displaces God within, with, well, within, like I said, within their own religion, but it also displaces God within, in reality. It's become an idol. It's a good thing. It's a right thing. The Bible will tell us that knowledge puffs up. Right, that you and I can study the Word of God, we can know all of the things that it says, and that can puff us up, that it can become a source of pride, that it would somehow cause us to fall. We have to be watchful of those things. Nothing should displace God in our life. Nothing should put that out of our, get that out of whack, as it were. He, he says that, listen, because you are stuck here, because you are unwilling, because of the pride uh, to put off this idolatry, that when you come to seek me, you will not find me. God shall not be found of them until they repent. And I put that proviso on there. Uh, we're not going to get there until next week, but we're going to spend some time talking about that this morning. Until they repent, until they come back to him. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. If we'll just pause there for a moment, God is saying, listen, pay attention and be responsive to the correction that I put in your life. Not only that, but he tells us how it's going to, I'm going to pour my spirit upon you. Just as Jesus said, the spirit, the comfort is going to lead us in truth. It's going to reprove us and correct us. It will remind us and bring to, to remembrance all those things that Jesus taught. And the same thing, we find that, that principle here in the book of Proverbs. I will make known unto you my words. That the spirit is going to lead us in that truth, even in the Old Testament. Is because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But you have sought, set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock, uh, mock when your fear comes. When your fear comes as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. And they shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. 
God here makes clear reference. Listen, those things are coming. Your calamity, your, the, that which you fear is coming, your desolation, uh, destruction as a whirlwind, all your anguish, those things are coming. You're going to reap what you sow. And when it does come, God says, listen, I will be laughing at you when it does come. And, and I, I realize that sounds very harsh and that sounds very uh, uncharacteristic of God. It doesn't mean that he is rejoicing in their calamity. What it does mean is that he recognizes and that he is sovereign in allowing and perhaps even orchestrating that calamity. What happens? What is the result of all of this coming upon them? It says in verse 28, they shall call upon me. He says, listen, I'm not going to be found of them. Let's continue on. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning, for the turning away of the simple shall slay them. The prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkens unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. God's last resort, just as it is here with Israel, his last resort is to give us over to our sin and let us reap what we sow. It's exactly what he's describing here in Proverbs. It's exactly what we find described here in the book of Hosea, the Ruhamah, Hosea chapter 1, verse 6, no more mercy. I'm going to give you over. I'm going to allow you. I will remove my mercy and you will reap what you have sown. Sowing and reaping is a true and a consistent biblical principle. And as we take opportunity this morning to draw these parallels between Israel and what's happening there, them being God's people, and he is dealing with them, I want to look and see what that, that looks like for you and I. Because God in his goodness is going to correct us. God in his goodness uh, at some point is going to remove his hand of mercy so that we might be corrected and reap what we sow. Now, clearly, we're not talking about losing salvation. We're not talking about being lost somehow again. That would be an unscriptural tendency. Israel is still God's people. That's still true today. Even though they've been scattered, even though they've suffered through all these exiles and persecution, all those things, God has specifically preserved them as his people. And not only that, it will continue to preserve them until such a time he is able to fulfill every promise he's ever made to them. He didn't let them go. They may be receiving correction, but God has not forsaken them. And the same is true for you and I as his people. That even if we receive correction, even if God removes, as it were, his mercy from us so that we might yield to the corrective hand of God. He didn't forsake us. He didn't leave us, nor did he abandon us. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. 
want to spend some time this morning looking at this. Romans chapter 1. Let's read verses 21 through 32. Now, normally when we read in Romans chapter 1, and I think this is the correct context, it is talking about those who would reject God. That it's a discussion about those who would uh, choose to ignore the truths that are there. But I think that there is some application that can be made even for believers. That we may at times be unwilling, that we may at times suppress truth in our own lives because it's inconvenient, because it's not what we want to deal with. Yet God in his goodness would say, listen, my predetermined plan for you is to conform you into the image of my son. We read that in Romans chapter 8. Therefore, we're going to deal with this. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, because they God when they knew God, right? We, we know God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I want to just highlight something in that particular verse. They knew God, but they didn't glorify him as God. And they were unthankful. All too often, I'm convinced that when we encounter hardship, when we encounter those things in, in our life, we are unwilling to acknowledge God for who he is, that he is, in fact, sovereign, that he is providentially moving in our lives, in and around us, even through hardships and trials, even through, through every circumstance that we may find ourselves in. There are times when we fail to acknowledge God for who he is. Perhaps it's intentional. Perhaps it's unintentional. But what it reveals is that our heart is not one that is focused upon him and his interaction with us as his people. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God has gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. What did God do? What was his resort as they were unreceptive to his correction? He gave them over to themselves. He allowed them to continue in their sin and now reap what they've sown. They changed, verse 25, the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even that woman did change the natural use in that, into that which is against nature. And likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves a recompense of their error, which was met. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient. God allows them to continue in their sin. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. 
Now, as I said, this is in reference to those who have rejected. But there is some parallel here and some application that we as believers should draw. That if God is in fact who he says he is, that if he is at work in our lives, that we would understand that everything that we receive, that we experience, is something to be thankful for. That God is at work, and at the very least, in the business of redeeming, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, for our best. That he might conform us into the image of Jesus. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. No matter where we land, no matter what is going on, no matter how hard or uncertain or how shakable or how persecutory the circumstance may be all around us. Now, none of this would preclude any of these people from coming to faith. At this point, they've rejected and God has given them over to their sin. But at any moment, they can realize where they're at because here they are confronted with their sinfulness. And when we're confronted with our sinfulness, what happens is the mechanisms that God has employed that he has created within us. The conviction of the Holy Spirit in the case of a believer. The clear standard of the law of God. And even the conviction of the Holy Spirit for the unbeliever. And the understanding that is currently suppressed within us. God has given us a conscience that instruct us, and we read that in the same chapter, we know when we're committing sin. We know when we're in the wrong. These people at any moment, when confronted with those mechanisms that God has designed, can choose to repent, can choose to now walk in faith. All of us were in the same boat until we accepted Christ. The same is true for you and I as believers, that at any moment we can come to a point of repentance where we're going to turn our hearts from whatever that thing is, whatever God has been correcting us about as gently or as harshly as he has had to correct us, we can turn from it. And then in the midst of all of that, God promises to cleanse us from it. In Galatians chapter 3, turn there with me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. But the scripture has concluded all under sin, that the promise of faith by Jesus might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, now we all had a moment where there was faith entering. Before faith came, we were kept under the law shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto christ that we might be justified by faith that here is god who has said listen i'm going to give you all of these mechanisms the the conscience the holy spirit my law codified for you written upon your heart so that when you sin, when you're confronted with your sinfulness, the choice is then put before you to believe or to reject. Now I'm convinced that we can believe that we can reject an innumerable amount of times before we receive. 
I don't know how many times I was presented with the opportunity to acknowledge my sinfulness and come to faith in a relatively short period of time, yet over and over and over again, I rejected it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, and it's speaking in regard to the end times, obviously, but it says that God is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish. That here is God dealing with us in mercy and in grace, not willing that any should perish, but enduring with the hardship, putting up with your stuff and my stuff. And in fact, not only just putting up with it, but engaging with us to the extent that he might convict us of our sinfulness and bring us to himself. The law was our schoolmaster. And if we, as we go through and we read through the rest of this chapter in Galatians chapter three, it talks about the deliverance by faith in Jesus Christ from that schoolmaster. No longer are we under the law. No longer are we subject to it. No longer are we bound to obey it as a mechanism of righteousness. But we are declared righteous. We are declared to be justified by God. Galatians chapter 6, and we've, we've quoted this without quoting it. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. It says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. This is true in the world of nature, and it's true in the spiritual realm as well. But if we plant grain, we're going to grow grain. If we plant barley, we, grow, we, we harvest barley. We reap barley. Apple trees have apples, and orange trees have oranges. Unless you've somehow corrupted the fruit and grafted them together, that's the way God has intended it. And the same is true for you and I, that God is not mocked, that there is a consequence for sin. Now, Jesus took the ultimate consequence for sin in your life and in my life. He paid the penalty so that we might be declared righteous. But if we're going to hold on to sin, if we're going to indulge ourselves in that, there will be some consequence in it. There's going to be some death that occurs as a result of it. He continues on, for he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Now, even you and I as believers can reap corruption. Those things that are going to suffer as a result of it. If we engage in idolatry, if we engage in, in adultery, if we engage, whatever it may be, whatever the sin may be, there is some ramification, some corruption that will happen as a result. And while we may not lose our salvation, while we may still be justified, David is a great case. He committed murder and adultery. There were consequences for both. Devastating to him were the consequences of both. Yet, he was still declared to be a man after God's own heart. Yet, I fully expect to see him in heaven. There's a consequence for sin. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now, this is not something that we can change. This is an uncompromised truth. 
but it demands of you and I perseverance on the part of the believer. Don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Fruit takes time to grow. You don't plant the grain and then immediately it comes up and you harvest the next day. It takes an entire season to develop. It takes an entire season for it to come to fruition and be ready for harvest. There needs to be on our part a continuation, a perseverance in the things of God. There is a real struggle that we are going to face, however, as Christians. This is for you and I as a church. Here we have God's people. They're struggling with sin. They're struggling with, with indulgence in that sin, with an unwillingness to turn from it. All of the things that we may expect to encounter ourselves as God's people, as his children, as those who have been declared righteous, as those who are guaranteed and assured our place in heaven. That was ominous, wasn't it? Turns me to Romans chapter 7. I want to begin here. Let's lay this foundation of understanding. I know this is sort of heavy and it's not fun, but we're going to conclude with this. And then as we get into next week, we're going to look at God's promise. As I said, with the promise of certain judgment, of reaping what we sow, comes the promise and the unashamed declaration of God that he has not forsaken us. We're going to conclude with that next week, but this morning I want to identify the struggle within us because there is not one of us here that can say, well, that's not me, it's not applicable to me. We all struggle with sin. Are we willing to acknowledge it? Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Now this is Paul the Apostle, and he says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. It is my nature. The law is spiritual. There's nothing wrong with the law of God, and there's more context to derive from uh, all that conclusion from, but there it is. There's nothing wrong with the law of God, but I am carnal. I am sinful. I am by nature opposed to the things of God, just as you are, just as I am. For that which I do not do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. Basically, Paul says, listen, the good things that I want to do, the pursuit of God, by walking in obedience, that's what I don't find myself doing. And those things that I don't want to be doing, the indulgence of my flesh, the, the, the sin, the anger, the, whatever it may be that I continue to find myself struggling with, that's what I continue to find myself struggling with. Now, listen, I don't want us to think that this is just a statement of fact that, it, that we will never progress in life. Because that's untrue. God, in, in the next chapter, Paul, by the hand of Paul, Romans chapter 8. He says in verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed or molded, shaped into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's a statement about our sanctification. There is a struggle with sin that is real and legitimate. But it doesn't mean that God has left us to fight that battle alone, nor does it mean that we will never progress in this life. The struggle with sin will be real, and you know what? We may overcome some things. We may regress in some things. We, we may find all new things that we didn't realize we had held on to that we had displaced God in an area of our life. 
But God in his faithfulness will continue to mold us, will continue to shape us, will continue to make us like Christ. The struggle with sin and the acknowledgement of its reality is not for us an escape. It isn't a statement of fact. And the struggle with our sin is not what defines us. The declaration of God is what defines us. And what has he declared about us? That you are righteous. That you are my child. That I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. That nobody can remove you from my hand. The Christian's struggle with sin is real. And you and I are going to face it. Make no mistake about it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just like Paul, we will have those things that we fall into that we don't want to be in and those things that uh, continue to come out of us that we don't want to be coming out of us. But something that I want you to, to, to see here and that we need to acknowledge is that in some respect there is a pursuit that is being made. Now, Paul wasn't continually in sin. It wasn't like every single day he woke up, and but there were those things that he struggled with, just as there are going to be those things that you struggle with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's begin in verse 9. He says, For we are laborers together with God. You are all God's husbandry. You are God's building. So he's talking about Paul and Apollos, Apollos and Cephas or Peter, right? And all these foundations. And there's team Apollos and there's team Paul and there's team Cephas. And everybody's like, well, yeah, we're on the right team. You're on the wrong team. And Paul's like, listen, give, up, give it up. That's ridiculous. And he's basically just saying, listen, we are all laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are his vineyard. You are that which he is cultivating. You are God's building. And he sticks with that building in the illustration. He says, according to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. Now, there's two things in that verse. Number one, he's saying, listen, Paulos or Peter or whomever it may be that's building upon the foundation of faith that I was able to be a part of sowing in your life. Great. I'm going to build on the foundation of Apollos too. And then he says this, and this is where we need to focus this morning. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. Every man take heed. Pay attention. Be intentional about how we're building. Now, the struggle with sin is going to be real. and That's always going to be there. However, it doesn't mean that we have to heal ourselves without a fight. It doesn't mean that we have to continue in it, that we are slaves unbound to it any longer. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He goes on and he says, listen... Where no other foundation can any man lay than that which is in Jesus Christ. That's the only foundation upon which we can build. In other words, if we're doing all the right things without the foundation of Jesus Christ, we're just spinning our wheels. Jesus would say that the foolish man built his house upon the sand, but the wise man built his house upon the rock, and he dug down. It's the same illustration, same thing. We have to begin first and foremost, am I one of the children of God? Am I born again. Am I a believer in Jesus Christ? That's the foundation. Nobody builds on anything else but that. Everything that we put on that. Either has eternal reward or eternal loss. 
And if you're just building on the sand, if you haven't built the foundation, if that doesn't exist, if you are not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, all of it burns up. All of the good things, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. So we take heed, we pay attention how we build, and he continues on, he says, listen, we can build with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. Different building materials. And we can build on that foundation. Now, you and I, when we look at that, we, we see the different materials and we see how they may be noble or how they may be ennoble, we, how, how they may be permanent and how they may be consumable. Right here's the struggle with sin illustrated for you and I. We yield ourselves to that thing which we don't want to be doing. That's building on the foundation of Jesus Christ with hay, wood, and stubble, those things that are consumed. Eternal loss. And I say eternal loss, and God would say eternal loss because you could have built with something else. Take heed how you build. Pay attention. Be intentional. Verse 13, he says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it was. It's going to be revealed if it was something that we were building either with impure motive, maybe it's still the right things, maybe it's those things that, that are good, but they've gotten out of whack. They've displaced God. They've become an idol within our lives. Or maybe we're building with those materials that are good and we're doing so with a pure motive and we're honoring the Lord in all that we're doing. It's revealed in the day of judgment. That's what the fire equates to, is this day of judgment. If any man's work abide, verse 14, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Those things that we do that are honoring to the Lord, that are consistent with his will, purpose, and ways, will abide, and there's reward associated with that. If any man's work shall be burned, in verse 15, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. And we're not talking about a loss of salvation. We're talking about building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. That's already been laid. But we may struggle with those things in our life that don't abide. Like I said, maybe it's a bad motive. Maybe it's just something that we've gotten out of whack that has crept in and become an idol and we've allowed it to be so. We haven't cut it out yet as cancer that it needs to be cut out. He himself shall be saved, but he's going to suffer loss. In Romans chapter 6, turn there with me. Romans chapter 6, I want to begin in verse 6. We have this description, and, and it really it's talking about baptism and, and the symbology related to baptism. But he says this, knowing, in verse 6, that an old man is crucified with him, that is, with Jesus Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin. And when we read the word serve here, it literally means be a slave to it. We have other options before us. As believers, we have a decision to make. We've already acknowledged that the struggle with sin is real. We already acknowledge that there are going to be times when we build with those materials that last, and sometimes we build with those materials that won't last. That's real. But it doesn't mean that we 
it does mean that we have the choice, that we can take heed, that we can pay attention, that we can be more deliberate, that we can be sensitive to those things that the Spirit is revealing in us and that we might turn from them. Our old man is crucified. Who we were before we were in Christ is crucified. No longer does it have control over us. For he that is dead is freed from sin. You know what dead people do? Nothing. They don't sin. They don't not sin. They do nothing. Our old nature is, is representative of our relationship to sin. It, where we don't have to listen to it any longer. Now, the problem is that we live with it. Uh, I read an article, and I can't remember what country it was. It was kind of shocking to me. I see this little thumbnail kind of sucked me in, you know, one of those. And it was a legitimate news site, the whole thing, but it just struck me. But you have this, these two corpses, and they're just standing there with these other two people. And in whatever, and I, I apologize, I don't remember, but in this culture, once a year, you dig up the dead people and you bring them out to remember them. And I'm like, that's terrible. That's Christians, sometimes we bring out the dead people to remember. We remember the good old days. We remember the things that we used to do. We remember those, the, the joy and the pleasure that we had in those sinful indulgences that we had before. And we think to ourselves, well, boy, it really wasn't that bad. That kind of music, that kind of uh, movie, whatever it might be, that bad the old man from from we, we bring it into the house and say well here it is we don't have to listen to it anymore when it rears its ugly head we just put it back in the grave right don't get grandma and grandpa out anymore just leave them over there now if we be dead with christ we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that christ being raised from the dead dies no more Death has no more dominion over him. He died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise, right? So, so there's this comparison that is about to be made. Here is Jesus Christ. He died, he resurrected, he came back to life. And in the course of all of that, he conquered sin. And not only did he conquer sin, he conquered the result, uh, the, 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 the result of sin, which is death. He's overcome that. Right? So for you and I who would exercise faith in him, we are only going to die one time. That's it. We're going to die one time. Those who don't believe in Christ, the Bible says that they die twice. They suffer a physical death, and then they suffer a spiritual death. We'll never suffer a spiritual death in Jesus Christ. So likewise, there's this comparison being made. Here is Jesus. He is alive. He sits at the right hand of God, and eternally so. Likewise, just as God is, Jesus is eternally at the right hand of God, likewise reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. In other words, we're not going to dig it up anymore. We're not going to bring it back in. We're not going to celebrate it. We're not going to reminisce about the good old days and all the things that we used to do. We're not going to indulge our flesh any longer. We're going to reckon ourselves dead to sin, and we're going to reckon we're going to determine that we are now alive to Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. 
there's clearly inferred in that verse a discussion. Here are the, here's the nation of Israel, and they're being, as we, as we progress through Hosea chapter 5, we're going to find that they're held to account because they're choosing to submit to these ungodly leaders. They're choosing to submit to this ungodly, idolatrous system of government that, that has been established in the kingdom of Israel. They're held to account for it. And we, as believers, may choose to submit ourselves gratification of the flesh as a reincarnation as it were of the old nature let not sin reign in your, in your mortal body that you should obey the lesser it's not in charge the choice is before us paul's acknowledgement of his sin nature and his struggle with sin is not an excuse just as it is not an excuse for you and i we're not going to let it rain. It's not going to have dominion or control over us. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. If you want to take 20, 30 minutes and read an incredibly powerful sermon, look up Jonathan Edwards, The, powerful, the Explosive Power of a New Affection. Right, and this is what we're reading about here. We, we, it's not simply that we don't yield ourselves, that we don't indulge the flesh. It's that we are now indulging ourselves in the service and the obedience to Christ. We don't just remove one without filling the void. Does that make sense? Because if we leave, the, if we leave it empty, it's going to fill itself up again. We're surrounded day in and day out by a world that is corrupt, by a world that is opposed to God. We have to guard against it by keeping the abundance of our hearts something that is consistent with godliness. We remain in his word. We, we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and the conviction that we may encounter there. We yield our hearts and minds to the things that God may be doing in our life. And if we don't do that, what happens? We're bombarded day in and day out. The abundance of our heart slowly fills up with these things that are outside, these externals. We talked about this morning in Sunday school, right? That Philippians 4.8, 4, that that would be our standard. Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever, right? Think ye on these things. Let that be our standard. We have to fill that void with the pursuit of things. In Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it's chapter 4, the end of that chapter, Paul basically discusses, he's like, listen, when is a thief not a thief anymore? That whole question, well, it isn't when he just stops stealing. And he, he goes on, he says, when he begins to now work with his hands. There are those that would claim to be disciples of Christ, yet there is no fruit or evidence by way of obedience to the law of God, which is the only metric we have, biblically speaking. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We're going to engage in a pursuit of God just as he is engaged in pursuing us. Now, let's continue on. What then shall we, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Verse 16. Well, we don't really need to go any farther than that. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Verse 14. 
It's not in charge. Now, we've acknowledged that there is a struggle with sin. We've acknowledged that, that, and Scripture acknowledges that. We've acknowledged that we need to take heed. We need to be careful that we can build with those things that last, that are consistent with godliness, or those things that are not. And when it says to take heed how we build, this is what we're discussing here, this idea that when, when I remove, when God removes from me the, the indulgence of my flesh, that I have to now fill it with my pursuit of God. If I can just phrase it that way. Hopefully that's simple. Hopefully that's easy for us to understand. Now, in the midst of all of this, we have God's help. Right? We have God's help. We've already mentioned that we have the Word of God, this, this standard by which He has clearly articulated to us His plans, His purpose, His will. We have the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about that. Just briefly, that Jesus Himself would say that the Spirit is going to lead you in truth. It's going to correct us and reprove us. But not only that, we have the corrective hand of God, just as Israel had the corrective hand of God. That he would gently correct us when we begin to stray, when we begin to allow the abundance of our heart to be something other than what is honoring and glorifying to him. He'll correct us mercifully. In Hebrews chapter 12, I want to begin in verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 12, because we're reminded first, first off, that we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, and that's a reference to the previous chapter. Those who have walked in faith with God, those who have seen and tasted and, and struggled. I mean, we have Noah, we have Moses, we have David, we have uh, Sam, uh, Samson's in there, we have Barrett, we have all of these people of God who walked in faith, none of them perfect, but they walked in faith. They were examples. And ultimately, what do we find a testimony of? We find a testimony of God's faithfulness. That though he may correct them, that though he may interact with them, he never forsook them. So we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. And as a result of the cloud of witnesses, it says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which is so easily beset or entangle us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We put off those burdens. We put off those things that would entangle us, that would corrupt us. We take heed about what we're packing around. And we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Right? We, we encounter things in this life that are often overwhelming. They're hard for us. We struggle with it. The exhortation here in this chapter is look to Jesus. And why do we look to Jesus? It's not some nameless just look to Jesus. It's look at Jesus and see what he endured, what contradiction of sinners. Here is the creator of the universe who would leave everything behind, who would take upon him the nature of sinful man, something lower than the angel's flesh for the purpose of dying. And we think we have it bad. That Jesus would leave the glory of heaven that he might come here, that we might be delivered from the effects of sin. 
Let's not just look to Jesus in some nameless or, or some fashion where there's a picture on the wall and, oh, I'm so inspired. No, it's a consideration of what he's done. It's a remembrance of his faithfulness. It's a remembrance of his sovereignty and a remembrance of his deliverance. You have not yet resisted another blood striving against sin. Verse 5, he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. There's a reminder of two things. Number one, that God is going to deal with us as his children. And number two, that the very thing that we might find ourselves in the midst of, that we're overwhelmed by, may in fact be the corrective hand of God. Now, it's not a guarantee. Just because we're having hardship does not mean that we are somehow in sin necessarily. But could it? It could. And when you be cognizant of that, of that here in the, in the case of Israel, it is clearly stated as such that God is dealing with them to bring them back to himself. He says in verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. That's not how they're correcting the unbelievers. Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and gave them, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. This is something that God is doing so that we might be partakers of his holiness. This is part of our sanctification. That's not a word. Part of our sanctification process. Good enough, right? This is something that God is doing in us. Why? To bring us back to himself, to correct us, to remove, to, to help us to take heed for those things that we are building with that are going to perish. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, what happened to the child? It died. When David said, listen, I'm in my pride. I want to know how many people I'm ruling over. What happened? Disease broke out. People started dying. His sin had a corruptive effect upon the people that he was governing until he repented. God is saying, listen, my hand is upon you because I'm trying to correct you. I want to bring you into holiness. I want to mold you into the image of my son. Now, I talked about participating in our sanctification, that we can participate in it. We can also work against it. We can be resistant to it. When your child comes to you and they confess, listen, I've done something wrong, and here it is, this is what I've done, we're much more likely to be merciful, aren't we? We're, there may be some consequence, but it's not going to be nearly as hard or as harsh as it may be otherwise, because the repentance has already happened. But on the other side, we, <laughs> there's deceitfulness involved, and we, we confront them with their sin, and they, oh, no, 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 right? You're busted. Now we're going to have to deal with it. 
And in the same way, God says, listen, when my hand is upon you, when you're participating in that sanctification process, when those things that confront you, the hay wouldn't stubble, those things that aren't glorifying to him, when we, by the presence of the spirit, by the conviction of the word, but whether it's maybe even through fellowship, uh, are confronted with those things and we respond to it, God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We've acted in repentance. When we don't respond to it, when we begin to harbor it, when that becomes the practice of our life, all of a sudden God's hand is on us. And it's somewhat heavier, isn't it? Verse 11, now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. I don't remember ever looking back as a kid and being like, man, I sure enjoyed getting in trouble that day. It doesn't seem joyous. In the moment, it does not seem joyous. It seems grievous, he says. It's hard. Here we are under the hand of God. Here's Israel under the hand of God. And he's warning them, this is going to be very, very bad for you. Nevertheless, doesn't change the fact, irregardless of any of that afterwards, after it has happened, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It brings about in us a conformity into the image of Christ. That we now become partakers of the holiness of God. He goes on and he spends the next several verses discussing our response to his corrective hand. This is what Paul said. Paul, I believe Paul wrote it. This is what he says. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Right here we are. And, and when, you, when you have to get after your kids and you got to correct them, there's this, right? You're just, they're down. They're bummed. They're, oh, this is terrible. I have trouble. I grounded. I, whatever the circumstance, I don't know. Have I, I don't think I've ever grounded any of our kids. I don't think we, we don't really do grounding. There's a lot more creative ways to deal with things, right? There's a lot more biblical ways to deal with things. Okay, but there's there's always. Uh, what should the proper response, kids? When your parents are correcting you, what should the proper response be according to the Bible? Lift up your hands, which hang down, and your feeble knees, right? It's not this. When God corrects us as his children, which he is going to do, why? Because he loves us. According to this chapter, because he loves us. It says to lift up your hands. This is a posture of worship throughout all of Scripture. Lift up your hands. Straighten your feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. Listen, respond to the correction is what he's saying. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Listen, what is God doing in all of this? Why is he correcting us? Well, he's here to say, listen, I'm helping you. Your struggle with sin, your struggle with your nature is real, and we understand that it's going to happen, but I'm not going to leave you without my aid. And if you won't, 
Listen to the easy things. If you won't take the merciful route, the messengers that I've sent ahead, like the prophets, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, the conscience that I put within you, then I will have to deal with you personally. Because I love you. And what we need to realize is that our appropriate response to God showing his love is rejoicing at the correction that we are now receiving. That's kind of hard to do. But we see that illustrated throughout Hebrews 11. This is the cloud of witnesses. That God is in fact faithful. Now next week, we're going to continue on this similar line of thought. We're going to conclude with the certainty of God's faithfulness. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to be in your word together. We praise you, uh, Lord, that even though we may struggle with sin, even though we may sometimes be like the kingdom of Israel and those in leadership, they're unwilling to turn from that which is uh, corrupting us, that which is ruining our witness to those around us, Lord, that you are never forsaking of us. That, Lord, you love us, that you understand, and you've been tempted in all ways as we are tempted, yet you remained without sin. But what joy that brings us that we would have a high priest, that, that you, Jesus, would know what we're going through. And that, God, in your love and your concern for each one of us, that you would not remove your hand of correction from us, that, Lord, you would graciously lay it upon us. That we might be conformed, that we might be molded into the image of your Son, that we might be turned from those things, that we might be convicted yet again and responsive. knowing, Lord, that it works about for us reward in the end, that, Lord, for our benefit, you are moving in our lives. Help us by your grace, Lord, to operate in thanksgiving and rejoicing at your hand. We praise you and thank you, Lord. And as we have opportunity to worship now, to sing and praise you for who you are and what you do in our lives, God, I pray it would be for everything that you do in our lives, not just those things that we perceive as good, but even though, Lord, those things that we may perceive as hard. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.